critically acclaimed but criminally underseen. 2008's In Bruges marked the feature-length film directorial debut of the highly acclaimed Broadway playwright Martin McDonough. Fresh off the Oscar win of his live-action short film Six Shooter, McDonough captivates his audience with the story of two Irish hitmen wrapped in a gorgeous Belgian setting. Despite the fact that the looks like a fucking fairy tale, there's so much more going on within. And even though it's not everyone's cup of tea, at least we're not in Bruges. So today, we find ourselves trapped in the in-between as we ask the question, in Bruges, what's it about? I'm your host, Ricardo Blade Diaz. And I'm Seth Crow. And this is the What's It About Film Podcast, the show where two aspiring creatives aim to glean the meaning of it all through the media we consume, holding a mirror up to ourselves and seeing how it reflects in our own lives. Today, we are being joined by a very special guest. Seth, would you like to do the honors of introducing our guest? Yeah. Um, today, we have a special guest, good friend, uh, co-worker, and uh, freelance writer, Megan Branham. Welcome, Megan. Hi. Happy Woo! to be here. Yeah. Hey. We've been trying to get this one in the can in the can for a while, so I'm stoked that uh that we we're we're finally doing it. So uh yes. the word of Inbruch. <laughs> Spread yes. the word of Inbruch, yes. exactly. Uh our apologies, Megan. Thank you for being so patient about the scheduling and things like that. You've been very patient and we're so glad to finally have you here. When I told her we had to postpone, she was so disappointed. Like I just saw her face just like drop. She's like, oh, "But I still want to do it." And I'm like, "No, we're we're gonna do it. We're gonna do it." <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, oh, you guys suck. <laughs> just watch it on my own. Yeah, um, I, I needed to be known. Uh, so I had no expectations for this film, and then um, I, I told Megan that, and I was like, "Yeah, I have no expectations." And then she was like, "It changed my life." And I was like, okay, well, now now I, I, I have guess. expectations. <laughs> so, uh, but it was not, I was not disappointed. I was not disappointed with this movie. It was, Did it change your life? Uh, I could see how it could be life-changing. And, it, you know, maybe, it, 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 I don't, I don't know. I don't know. We We should get into that. We should, that's like. Oh, we'll dig in down the road. No worries, yeah, we'll worry. dig into that. So, so on that note, Megan, yeah, Seth told me that same thing. He gave me that pitch when he said you picked Inverush. He said Megan said this movie changed her life, and I was like, whoa, okay, like what? Let's go into it. So, I want to ask, um, how did this movie change your life? When is the first time you saw this movie, and why is it kind of stuck with you? Without going into too much detail, as we will go into more of that stuff a little bit later. But again, when did you see it? How did it strike you and why is it stuck with you so long? Okay. So changed my life might've been hyperbole a little bit. No. But <laughs> it did. I went into it when I first saw it. I had, I, I don't know. I had heard of it, but never really heard what it was about or, or why people liked it so much. And I hadn't heard a ton about it. Just people who I really admired and respected their movie opinions had casually mentioned it. So I just put it on, I think like, one Christmas I was back home like two years ago and I thought it would be just a fun, distracting movie to watch. And I just like, it just blew me away because I didn't have expectations going into it. It's a very different experience than you had. Sorry about that. But I, <laughs> I didn't know what to expect. I knew that he had done, um, the, the writer of this had done a couple movies, like seven psychopaths. Um, well, no, actually this was his first one, but I knew mm -hmm. that after that he had done these. And I hadn't seen those and I always thought they weren't like my type of movie because they were, you know, mm. guys with guns and 
being crass and I, I thought that I knew what I was getting. And then to get this like beautiful reflection on redemption and forgiveness and morality was, and like also just a beautiful movie and so perfectly written. I just, it just stayed with me. I don't know whether it was just the quality of it mixed with the message and how much it resonated. So I don't know if it changed my life, but it's a big part of my life. Beautiful. That's a beautiful explanation. How many times would you say you've seen this movie? Not as many as you might think, <laughs> the way I talk ah. about it. I think three, four. And I, okay. I hadn't seen it in about a year up until this morning when I watched it again. <laughs> so nice. I... Good Oh, yeah. You're coming in hot. You're coming in hot. No. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. If, if, you just, if you just watched it, you're like, man, okay. Yeah. It's all really fresh. Um, so I watched it last yeah. night again just to make sure. Yeah. I watched this movie originally. Like, I mean, I've seen this movie before, but I watched it again when I was on set for a movie I'm shooting. And so, like, I was, like, watching it, like, with, like, all this kind of shit going on. And people would walk and go, oh, in Bruges. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm busy. I know. <laughs> so uh, I had to rewatch it just to make sure I didn't I didn't uh, miss anything. Uh, but yeah, what a beautiful explanation. And I think you're right. It's one of those movies that can have a lasting impression without the like massive rewatchability that a lot of other movies might have. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what about you? What, how'd you, how do you – you hadn't seen the movie before this, right? I, I had this was your first that. introduction. I was like, this is like a judge a book by its cover kind of situation for me because when I looked it up, the I think the title is like the way the the cover poster or cover image looks does mm-hmm. not at all reflect what this movie is is like. You know, it's like mm-hmm. Colin Farrell with a gun being like, ooh, and like it's like in Bruges and weird. A weird, weird font. font. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. pink, pink bubbly font. Yeah, yeah. no, it, yeah. This, the cover should be like a statue in gothic f- type. You know what I mean? Like, it we'll get like, into that. We'll get into yeah, my feelings on but, that. But yeah, but uh, I do think that this movie is. I mean, it is a. It is tender. This movie is tender, uh, sensitive, sweet, and like. It, for a shoot 'em up movie, it is very effeminate. You know, like it's got a lot of um, emotional. There's a lot of empathy in, like it, a, in this, a lot, in a lot this of movie. Empathy. Yeah, it's very, very emotionally grounded, um, and and yeah, I, I, I very much enjoyed it. Um, and the language, I think the language is my favorite thing. In the in oh, the Martin film. McDonough is known for being his dialogue being pretty much. I mean, that's Man. a playwright right there, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just, like, the way the words are used in this movie is, like, it's like I, don't, I don't care. I don't care about anything mm-hmm. else. Like, I don't, I don't have to – I just want to listen to them talk to each other, mm-hmm. you know? It's 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 great. But, yeah, that's my right. initial impressions. Awesome. So let's get into a little bit of how this film came to be, a little bit of this film history. Um, so, yes, as we mentioned before, this film is written and directed by Martin McDonough. Uh, Martin McDonough, uh, who is best known – for writing films such as In Bruges, Seven Psychopaths, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, uh, and the upcoming Banshees at Venirshim. He also wrote and directed uh, the short film, Oscar-winning short film, Six Shooter. But McDonough may be a little bit better known as a very, very successful Broadway playwright uh, for writing The Beauty Queen of Lanon, The Cripple of Inishman, uh, Skull in Kenemara, The Lonesome, 
the Lieutenant of Inishmore, the Pillow Man, a Behanding of Spokane, Hangman, and a very, very, very dark matter, many of which had been nominated for Tony's for best play. So very accomplished writer, uh, Mr. McDonough is. Um, Have you ever seen Lieutenant of Inishmore? I've never seen the play. I've read a few of those. I don't know if that's one that I'd read. I've never, I've never seen it, but I've read it. And like, it's pretty wild. What, Mm -hmm. like what the level of gore and violence (laughs) that they do. You talk about gore. That's fair. You talk about gore and violence. Like what about the pillow man? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of my favorite plays. I love the pillow man, but it's so sad. Dark. Um, Yeah. Very dark. But, Let's talk about – that's just a little bit of background about the creator. Let's get into actually how In Bruges came to be. So the origins of this movie, In Bruges, began unsurprisingly in Bruges, Belgium. Located about an hour outside of Brussels, Bruges became a very important trading port during the Middle Ages. While the city's prosperity would decline over the centuries, it kept its historical aesthetic and its classic architecture, art scene, and winding canals make it a very attractive tourist destination. Over the course of a weekend in Bruges, McDonough found himself both taken and annoyed by the picturesque city. He began to imagine two characters and how they might respond to the different aspects of the city. And then he would begin writing what would become the two main characters, Ray and Ken, uh, of In Bruges. McDonough showed the screenplay to a few producers who would praise the script's dialogue, characters, and compelling story, calling it an amazing piece of writing. Within a year of showing the script to producers, the film had been picked up by Focus Features and put into production. It wasn't long after that that Farrell and Gleason were cast. Even though the characters in the script were originally Londoners, McDonough made the choice to make them Irish instead to fit the actors. Luckily, the city of Bruges, which is known as the Venice of the North, was very accommodating to the production and granted them access to basically anywhere they wanted, including many historical venues, uh, making things very simple for them to shoot there for seven and a half weeks. Uh, one particular highlight is obviously the art museum that they shot at. Uh, it's rare to film inside of an art gallery uh, for many, many reasons. Uh, but uh, Farrell and Gleason found themselves during between takes very occupied, kind of walking through the uh, art gallery, looking at art in between takes. So they really enjoyed that part of filming. In Bruges would premiere at the 2008 Sundance Film Festival on opening night. And from there, it would go on to receive many award nominations, including Golden Globes, BAFTAs, and even a 2009 Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. But it would eventually lose to Milk. Despite not winning the Oscar, In Bruges did make a decent profit, grossing over $34 million worldwide on a $15 million budget, and would become somewhat of a hidden gem that many film fans reference as a great piece of cinema to this day. That is the history of of in Bruges. So, oh boy, guys. Oh, I hope you're prepared. So, for anybody out there who has not seen in Bruges, first of all, go see him. See in Bruges. There's ways to see it. But if you're going to listen to this podcast anyway, this is what in Bruges is. This is the log line. This is the plot. And then we're going to get into the question. So, this is what the film is. This is the basic plot. This is the log line just to kind of refresh you of what the story is. After a botched job, two Irish hitmen find themselves sequestered in a medieval-looking Belgian town, awaiting instructions on what to do next. 
that is what the film is about. Or at least what the story is. But it's time for us to get into what's really going on here. Seth, would you like to ask our guest the question? Yeah, yeah, I will. Uh, Megan, this is the big moment. Are you ready? Sure. Megan, in Bruges, what's it about? (laughs) So the reason that I love this movie so much and can watch it, I mean, I haven't watched it at a time, but I've thought about it a lot, is that it, you can think about it for a very long time. And every time you watch it, there's like a new line of dialogue that means something else or a new scene that means something else. So I think it's a, it's about a lot, but for me, the thing that I, when I first saw it hit me the hardest was the story of trying to understand how to forgive ourselves and how to understand our own moral codes without the compass of what for centuries kind of defined it for, at least in Western culture, like religion and heaven and hell. And this is right. This is right. This is wrong. This is wrong. And how we, without that, like, this is how you get forgiveness. Definitely. How do we redefine that for ourselves? And this character has done such a horrible thing, like the most horrible thing you could have done. And somehow he's the one you're rooting for and he's the one you empathize with the most. And that's a really powerful thing. And at the end, when you see him hope not to die, it feels really hopeful and really warm, which is strange to see like a murderer of a child and not, and I want them to have a second chance. Um, And then there's all the reflections on, again, our own shame and our own guilt and what it takes to move past them. And is it other people's forgiveness? Is it your own forgiveness? How do you find it if other people won't forgive you? Um, There's a lot. There's a lot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. You hit on a a lot of, a lot of things that I think are, are big in this film. Mm -hmm. Um, Particularly. Yeah. The, the forgiveness and guilt, I think are huge in this one. Mm -hmm. Um, McDonough's so good about that. McDonough's so good about creating characters who do kind of like really messed up stuff that mm-hmm. you somehow making you like them. He does it, you know, amongst the darkness. There's there's like this warmth that he finds. Like Pill- I know Pillow Man does that too. Seven Psychopaths has some of those moments. McDonough's really good at that kind of stuff mm-hmm. about finding the like you said the the warmth in this darkness which is a good way to describe it. Seth, what about you? What do, how do you feel about this film? What do you think it's about? Uh, I think Megan nailed a lot of it. Um, I'm, I might restructure how I phrase what she said and just that I really do think, I think, I mean, this movie is, has very, very Christian principles behind it. Um, uh, and, and, and I think specifically from a Catholic perspective, right? Um, but I would say this movie encapsulates grace driven change almost better than I've, I've seen in any, any film or, I mean, just anywhere, you know, like it's, it's very, um, this is how this, if, if you believe in God, this is how God works, I think. Um, and even, even with, in terms of justice, like in terms of of 
like we see with uh, Ray Fine's character at the end of the movie um, and his end, uh, it's like if you don't, if you stick to your principles too much, you're going to blow, you're going to blow your head off. You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> and, and, and you might not have to, you know, like he didn't kill a little boy, but it's, I, I don't know. I just think, I think this is, if there is a God, then this is kind of the way God works. And this is how people actually become good people is through grace driven change. You know, mm. like being a good person isn't really enough if you're being a good person for your own justification and ends, it usually takes some sort of tragedy or um, event in your life to actually em- endow the desire, the true, a pure desire for, for goodness. I think um, the the most powerful moment in the movie for me uh, is right before, and this is just the way my brain works, but right before. Uh, Ken jumps off, you know, uh, the, mm. the tower mm. and he takes the change out of his pocket and drops it. Yeah. To warn people down below to get people to move. But it's also the metaphor for change. Like, like he's trying to get, he's trying to get, um, Ray to change, you know, mm. and, and he'll do anything to help him change. And I, I just, I, it's kind of on the nose, but it's like, I was like change, like this is how mm-hmm. change happens. You know? Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's, that was my, that was my feelings. Mm-hmm. What about you, Ricky? It's so interesting. Uh, you guys, I, th- this is, might be one of the first mo- times Seth, where like you're looking at the end and I'm looking at the experience of it. Oh yeah. It's usually yeah. we're the reverse. Right. That's true. Usually, yeah. In, our, in a lot of our podcasts, Megan, I tend to look at very much how things resolve themselves and find the meaning there. Where Seth mm-hmm. is like, "Oh, but what about all the things that happened before that?" And kind of living in that moment rather than finding it at like where things resolve. For me, I really get wrapped up in this film's idea of like getting caught in a in a place in in between, in a place of like waiting. Mm-hmm. Um. Because for me, this film is all, you know, it's it's in Bruges. It's all about being in this place where you don't want to be, where you feel like you're being punished or you feel like you're just kind of being put to sit and wait until you're able to move to the next state to being the next place. It's, it's you know, they compare it. They use the allegory to purgatory in a lot of ways yeah. in this film. They, they compare Bruges to being in purgatory a lot. Um, and for me, it's, it makes me think of all all the times where I felt like I was in a place where I just was stuck, you know, for either by my own volition or by life circumstances and just kind of in this place of anger or frustration, guilt, sadness, grief, and just kind of stuck in this place until like kind of like you said, Seth, until something allows you to move forward because it's not always your choice. Like sometimes you're, you would love to be anywhere, but where you're at. And there's sometimes no matter what you try, you're in that place. And it's not until something comes along and allows you to move on, whether that be, like you said, grace or something else. It's about the growth. For me, it's about the growth that happens in that in between. Oh no. 
I'm realizing we're going to get real philosophical on this one, y'all. This is not gonna... How could we not? <laughs> I mean, Sorry. That's true. That's true. <laughs> when you watch this movie, you didn't think it was going to get philosophical? I did. I mean, I do. I do. Uh, first and foremost, I guess I have to ask Megan, do you have any religious background at so, all? Not really, um, which I feel like, I mean, I picked up obviously on the purgatory thing. Um, honestly, that took a second watch because I was so distracted by like how good the movie was when I first mm-hmm. watched it. Um, and I always, when I rewatch it now, Ken as a, a stand-in for kind of like a Jesus-like figure is a really interesting mm-hmm. way to watch it. Um, but when it comes to my own religious background, I mean, I, we went to church until I was like five. So I don't remember really. Mm-hmm. And then we would go Easter and Christmas and then we just stopped going. And it was never in my family. It was never, um, a big deal, but I just feel like culturally enough of it was like, I absorbed enough of it just as even as an outsider that I still dealt with shame and guilt about stuff. Like, you know, if I made a mistake, I did feel like I had to, even though I didn't know that I believed in God, I felt like I had to ask for forgiveness and pray. And I was like, well, if I, what else do I do if I've messed up? Can I, do I like, do I have the power to like decide that I forgive myself? Um, so I, I don't know. I still wrestled with those things and I can only imagine if, if somebody who didn't grow up with those things ingrained in them wrestled with them, how difficult it is for somebody who did grow up with those things constantly reiterated and driven home, you know, that way. Hi. 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 <laughs> he's, Hi oh my God, you. he's here. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. We're, so how should we start? How should Seth, we tell us about suffering. Uh, no, no. I mean, I don't want to be like, that's not, that's not, that's not. Seth, Seth uh, tell us about Catholic suffering. Tell us about Christian, I, I, Christian I, I, guilt. Religious trauma. Tell us about Christian guilt. Yeah. Right now. I'm not Catholic. I, I was, I was actually about Christian asking, guilt. I was wondering if you were Catholic just by chance, uh, because. I, I mean, I yeah. grew up Catholic. Yeah, you grew up Catholic. Okay. So you'll be, I'm glad we have a Catholic here. Um, <laughs> that's that's not that's a sentence that has not been said <laughs> in a long time <laughs> by anybody. I'm glad we have the Catholic. You, what's, it, what's it called? Did you take? Did you get? Uh, watch it. Watch it. In Catholicism, they do uh, a confirmation. Uh, yeah, I was confirmed? confirmed. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah, you're a Catholic. Um, yeah. Uh, I know. <laughs> so I know. Uh, I'm, I mean, not practicing think, though. Not practicing. I think, I think in order to be a hitman, uh, you and, and religious, you'd have to be Catholic. Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, hear him out. Keep going. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, because uh, I mean, the way Catholicism works, very ritualistic, you know. Um, so, like, you know, you're forgiven for your sins, but you have to go like to confession. You have to go. You know, a lot of Catholics. Yes I've, and no. There yeah. are there are ten commandments, and those no, are I like, agree. And, and "Thou shalt not kill" is on there. It's like you don't really get forgiven for those. Like you don't get forgiven. It's very rare. Not you can't go like, "Hey, I murdered ten people." And like, okay, you're good. Like that's not how it works. Like those are like the ten commandments. It's a little bit different. 
But you don't honor your father and mother, and you don't get damned to hell if you don't confess Look, for that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about the the logic of it, but like, <laughs> I'm saying so like, point, okay, this it's not just it's not just so easy to go to a priest and be like, I murdered somebody, oops, and like get get like get forgiven. Like that's not exactly how it works. But, it, but this it's like left up to God at that point, right? But this reiterate this is what I'm kind of saying is like Catholicism has this ritualistic mindset where you have to if you do said thing you can go and you have to formally go through a, a process to be forgiven right so i think it's mm-hmm. it, it it's a religion that or it's a structure of a religion that i think allows for a lot of uh eh, it doesn't really like you know it's easy to throw it out it, it, it's easy to be like it's easy to be like okay well i'll just go and and do my Hail Marys. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it creates like this rote spirituality of, and it, it, it's very, very hard to be diligent at because there's so many little, little structured rules that nobody can follow. It, it makes it very difficult to be a good Catholic, you know? Yeah. You're not wrong. And, uh, and so like, I think, and, and I mean, the main religion over there in Europe is, is Catholicism. So it makes, it makes sense. But I mean, it also makes sense that you could still have a Catholic mindset and be a hitman, you know, like, because so you're saying there's like a, a self-righteousness to it. <sighs> no, I don't like that. Like that. Like, like if you ask God for God's the highest power and therefore that you can do anything as long as you ask for God's forgiveness. Yeah, basically. Like, I mean, it, absol- and, I mean, it absolves you of your actions. Yes. But it's, it's all up to you. It's like, it's like you have to go do a thing to absolve your ac- actions. Does that make sense? Yes. Because so, but, but that's not really how it works. Like that's not the, the sentiment and the mindset of the rest of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess what I'm saying is, is like these hitmen. I, I think we're going down a spiral here. I, I didn't. I don't think these guys are Catholic. I, yeah, I didn't. Uh, I didn't think they were. I mean, I think I because they're. they're, they're I, I mean, so, the way that they move is very Catholic. The way that they move through the religion that they're dealing with, dealing with, uh, even when he kills the priest, he's like he knows how to go about it. You know what I mean. That's but a fair that, point. Yeah, but is that them being like practicing Catholics, or is that just how for so long that was so deeply ingrained? And in, like I said, I mean, I didn't grow up Catholic, but I still know that, and I still, mm-hmm. you know, they, know they about are them. Irish. They yeah, are. I mean, Catholicism is huge in Ireland. Yeah, and like that, I think Martin McDonough himself grew up Catholic, if I'm not mistaken. It, but, they they they're probably not practicing Catholics. But they're definitely indoctrinized with Catholicism. I mean, that's mm. that's the religion there, mm. you know. And but it's and, and and Catholicism does a great job of instilling fear. You know, you go to church. Oh my god, yeah. You go to yeah. church four times. You go to church four times, and you see that bloody Jesus that's hanging at the back of the church. You know, like. And then, and also they're not afraid of depicting like scary, scary shit in paintings and, 
you know, yeah. and, uh, sculpture, like you definitely are introduced to monsters <laughs> at like church, you know, like, uh, and the, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is there's no two better, there's no two better people to like iterate this, this concept of grace than these hitmen. Like, I think right. it's really brilliant. No, um, I, I, as a writing thing, you're right. Cause I think what this movie does really well. And Megan, you touched on this is like Ray Spoiler alert for everybody that has not seen the movie. Again, I don't know why, but just in case, I'm about to spoil the thing. Uh, Not that this is a big revelation. It's not like the end revelation, but this is something that we learn. Uh, Ray accidentally kills a kid in the process of murdering a priest. Someone put a hit out on this priest, and in the process of doing the hit, he accidentally murders a child in the crossfire, which is... I think objectively we could all say absolutely horrible, mm-hmm. horrible. It's a horrible thing. But you immediately see his regret and guilt right away as soon as he knows what sees what you did. Mm-hmm. And he's tortured by it throughout the entire movie. You know, I wanted to ask this question to present this question to you guys. Why do you think Ray hates Bruges so much? What is I it about Bruges that gets at him? I mean, it's definitely – all the the paintings they look at in the art museum and the the churches they go to, it's just this constant reminder of his own guilt and how he maybe can't be forgiven. You're seeing all these people in these paintings being punished and being, you know, just there doesn't seem to be any hope in some of those images. And also you're surrounded, to be surrounded by all that beauty and to be in a place of that much pain is really difficult. And then also I think he's just kind of immature and bored, like genuinely mm. just bored. Um, which is also interesting because I think his like childlikeness is a really kind of makes him seem more innocent than he might otherwise. Um, but yeah, Bruce just might be boring for him. Well, yeah. I think Ken Ken goes into that a little bit about a little bit about Ray's backstory. He was kind of like scooped into this hitman life at a pretty young age. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was young when like he kind of like got like brought into this business, and so Wait, he's kind he of say, like you said, he's emotionally stunted. Well, I think Didn't it was his say, first job. Yeah, it was his yeah. first job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, yeah. yeah, he's definitely emotionally stunted, and I think he, they talked about how he grew up in like a very like a rough life. He had a pretty mm-hmm. rough upbringing. So he's probably super like emotionally stunted in like his teen years, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But I, I I like you. Yeah, I agree. I think like Bruges itself is like we talked about earlier. This and this is true about Bruges even to this day has kept its like very middle age gothic aesthetic. Like it looks very old. Like feels and looks very old mm-hmm. as a town. And like people, I think a lot of people associate like middle ages with like very deep religious vibes like mm-hmm. the middle ages and the crusades had like a very just like deeply inherent yeah. Reli- yeah, religious religious guilt and religious yeah. connotation mm-hmm. and so like b- literally being like put in this town where it's like you're back in the middle ages where all the where everybody like lives their lives in this way mm-hmm. i think you're right like imposes an extra layer of like pressure and guilt onto him 
Because like literally, even before he goes to the the art museum, because he doesn't go up until, you know, he doesn't go in there until later, about mm-hmm. like you know maybe like twenty thirty minutes into the movie. As soon as they get to Bruges, he's unhappy to be there and he's uncomfortable, and he's, and he just keeps talking shit on on this town, which I think is funny that the town's like, yeah, come on in, shoot yeah. here, we'd love to have you, and all he does the whole movie is talk shit on this place. Boring it is. <laughs> how boring and how horrible and sucky it is, and how he wouldn't die anywhere but here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Go ahead, Seth. I mean, I agree with everything you're saying, and also it's just not London. You know, mm-hmm. like, like I think he knows how to navigate London. London is his culture, and I think. All of what you said is correct, but also it's just he only likes what he knows, you know, and and mm-hmm. if you're not if he's not going to like it, he's not going to like it. He's just chosen not to like he's, he's closed minded in that way, you know. Mm-hmm. I totally get I think also there there is a there's a, a something that's being played on here with like his guilt, like like Ray is portrayed as like being in a very dark place emotionally where he feels, he feels very guilty. Like there is talk about like what to do next and going back to London, but I don't think Ray, I don't think is in a good place. Right. I don't think Ray is going to, is having trouble forgiving himself. Right. That's Mm -hmm. like, like you said, there's a whole, the whole arc for Ray is like, is he able to overcome his own guilt Mm -hmm. to like want to move forward out of this stuck place? He's in his own purgatory, whether he's in Bruges or not. Right. And so there is this question of, I think the, like you said, the beauty that surrounds him in contrast to the darkness and ugliness that he feels inside, like the Mm -hmm. monster that he thinks he he is, Mm -hmm. um, I think would be that contrast of like feeling you feeling ugly and seeing so much beauty and everybody telling you how beautiful it is around you. This is so beautiful. Like you should appreciate this. You should appreciate that when all you feel is ugliness inside you would be really hard to, to, to be surrounded by. Right. Yeah. And I think, I, oh, go ahead, I Seth. agree. I agree that that is, I, I, I don't know. I don't know why I'm arguing this, but yeah. I why? Agree that, I agree. <laughs> I agree that, I agree that that from a writing perspective is true, right? Like I can see what you're saying, but from the character perspective, I don't think maybe that's like meta, like imposing on him and it's subconscious or whatever, but he's such a kid. He's so childish that I just think it is a lot boredom. He's like, we're not in London. He wants to, he wants to be able to, fall into his own distractions maybe okay maybe that's well it, that, i was just gonna say it. i that's i was just gonna yeah. say on top of that i think he's looking for distractions from his from his guilt and, and bruce doesn't them. have bruce doesn't have them well he finds them that night with he the, does he does the find them and the, i'm sorry the sex worker and the you know the drugs and and then mm. the next morning he doesn't feel any better the next morning he tries yeah. to kill himself mm. and i mean that's yeah i i totally agree with you megan i think Seth, I think it's the it's both, right? He's looking yeah, for distractions okay. because because of his because of his guilt. He and, and and who children are so susceptible to feeling like they they're you know I feel like when a child does something and they feel like they did something bad, children are so hard on themselves. Like they're oh, yeah. they're, they're crying and they they they're scared. They they feel terrible. 
kids do. I see it all the time when a kid hurts another kid's feelings. It happens all the time. They hate they get so, they take it so hard on themselves, right? And I feel like Ray is like that. He killed. He's a kid in his heart that killed the kid. Yeah. And like, and like, even though like he tries to deflect by like being sarcastic, making jokes, uh, you know, ridiculing other people. He really is just looking for anything to dist- to distract himself from the fact that he feels like a bad person. Yeah, and that's a, um, a lot of what the way Ken talks about him. He's always referred to as the boy, and mm-hmm. he's even like when he when he sees the list of sins that the little boy has, like those are all things that he goes through and deals with. I mean, I I read like an analysis was even like that last one that was like bad at math. And they were like, well, you could call meaning to kill one person, but killing two being pretty bad at math. And I think those like that combination of we're all innocent and guilty and we're all some somewhere stuck in the middle um, is really driven home. That way. Mm-hmm. And, man, I'm so uh, there's like a hundred things going through my head right now with this. Pick this, four of them. Uh, <laughs> OK, first and foremost. <laughs> like okay he kills the he kills the priest accidentally yes. kills the little boy i mean uh, what's to say that the priest's life wasn't as valuable as the little boy's life and no nope, nobody's you, saying that <laughs> right but but what what i'm what i'm getting at is is like okay so why is the little boy like because they're hitmen you know so they have all these mm-hmm. like arbitrary they have their own moral about, co- yeah they have, they have their, their own, own moral, moral code. code but killing the boy is not okay mm-hmm. you know and but i mean it's a good metaphor for like us right so like like what do where do we draw lines in our own lives that's okay and not okay like so say okay let's let's say like uh, if you're in a relationship, is it is it wrong to look at pornography, or you know, like at what point is like at what point is cheating cheating? If you're in a relationship, is it pornography? Is it having an emotional relationship with somebody? You know, so like this this here in this here, what we're talking about, in lies one of the great philosophical questions within Christianity, and how grace works, right? Because it's like, okay, if you're starting to put value, sin value on different sins, like, is there like a threshold for when you're damned? Right. But that's not really, that's not how Christianity works. And some, something that people get really, really, really pissed off at within Christianity is the, te- like the, the, the part of the gospel where there is a thief on a cross, right? Are you guys familiar with this? Okay, so Jesus is dying, right? Like he is on the cross dying. Mm-hmm. And there's two men on crosses behind him, one on each side. And one of them just lets Jesus, is, doesn't say anything. The other is a thief. And as he is about to die, he says, Hey, will you remember me in your kingdom to Jesus? And Jesus is like, I'll see you in a bit. 
And so like in that moment, just the, just like the asking to be forgiven is enough to instill grace in this thief and save his soul. So this pisses a lot of people off because it's like, so you can just ask for forgiveness for, for your wrongdoings. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I mean, I literally had this conversation with my girlfriend last week. Like we were talking about Donald Trump or, you know, like some of these mass shooters and like, so you're saying that like right before they die, mm -hmm. they can ask for forgiveness and then they just go to heaven. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, I mean, I'm not saying that the, I'm not saying that they mean it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I'm saying that I think, yes, it's possible if you're going to take a Christian perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also important to note that I don't think Ray is looking for forgiveness to save his own soul. I think there's a part of that, obviously, because he's still a person and there's a self-preservation instinct. But I think he genuinely hates that he's done this thing and ruined, you know, at the end, he says he'll find the mom of the boy and ask for forgiveness yeah. and accept whatever that is, whether it's yeah. him being saved or him being damned. He just wants, I think the pursuit of that redemption from a, with the intent to do good is is much different and also the intel he didn't mean to i mean he's still a hitman so he's still a bad person but i think the question of intent is really important too but i i yeah uh, i totally oh go ahead Seth. i just want to say i think that that state is where true goodness comes from Mm -hmm. right. right. The fact that he's not looking for grace. He he's mm -hmm. look honestly, he's less looking for grace and he's more looking for punitive measures. He's looking to be punished. Mm -hmm. He he feels guilty and he wants something he deeply does. He wants to be punished. Like mm -hmm. you said, he he'll take any punishment that anybody will give him, whether that's like you said, going to prison, he'll take it. Whether that's someone killing him, he'll take it, you mm -hmm. know? Whether that's being damned, he'll, he'll, that's that's that so be it. That's mm -hmm. what he he thinks he deserves. He'll take whatever punishment he's given. Yeah. It's but he but, wants to make it right by somebody else. So like like Seth's saying, like that's where like grace could come in because he's not looking for his own salvation. Right. It's it's in the pursuit of of trying to make right by who he'd hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we all agree that we want, we all agree, I think, that we hope for Ray to make it. We yeah. all hope he lives, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and okay, keep going. I'm sorry. I, I had a thought and then it went away. So, no, I, I think to move more into a self reflective part of the conversation, um, I think I have a tendency to live in this very like guilt place, this like purgatory of guilt where I'll do something and just kind of live in this like very dark place. And like, I'll, and I will accept a type of punishment without a forgiveness type of thing. For, for example, I used to get, we talked about this on the podcast a lot. I used to get picked on quite a bit growing up, you know, when you're a kind of a, a chubby kid and a, and a, a Latino, young Latino boy growing up in a very white area, you kind of become a target pretty easily. And uh, I remember maybe like seventh grade or so, maybe eighth grade, I was at a friend's house for like a, a party. Like we were just hanging out, seventh, eighth graders. And like these guys were coming at me pretty hard. And 
I have a high tolerance for a lot of BS. But like once like people start like physically touch like messing with me in that way, like physically like touching me, pinching me, or like kind of like fucking with me like that, I can snap. And I snapped on this one guy and it didn't take much for me to kind of like put him in his place a little bit. And right immediately after I'd done that, I was like the most guilty I'd ever been. I like went in the corner. I like cried at this party because I felt horrible, even though that's not on me. You know what I mean? Like, like you can only push somebody so far. You know what I'm saying? But I felt bad that I had hurt this person. That like I was overwhelmed with guilt, and all I wanted to do was just like get in trouble at that time, yeah. and I like could not enjoy the rest of the like time I was there. It was right. bad, um, and I got stuck there for a while. For a mm-hmm. while, I got stuck in that spot and just could not move forward mm-hmm. until other people at the party came over and was like, "You're fine. Like they deserve that shit." You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, it took a lot though to get me out of there. It wasn't me getting myself out. It was other people coming over to for to forgive me, even though I wasn't looking for forgiveness, Mm -hmm. you know? Yes. And that's why it's not, that's why being human, I don't think is an, you're, you're not, you're not good at serving your own judgment, you know? Mm -hmm. And, And I think, the reason, the moment I was like, we, we're going to get real philosophical is because like the way I view the world is you have this like, this is going to be dumb. You have this magic butter knife, right? <laughs> it's like a, it's like a, a spiritual butter knife <laughs> and you can like only do, you can only like, and like you live in like a, a house full of butter. <laughs> Continue. And like. You can make your way through the world and this butter knife can like carve your way through the world. But there's certain places for some reason the butter knife doesn't work, you know, like it won't it won't carve like everywhere. You know, you can't do anything you want to do, but then suddenly it will work. Suddenly the butter knife will be able to carve. You don't have like any control over how you carve through this butter house, you know, like. It's it's like it's like once you've carved the space, you sometimes can can move. The, I, I made this metaphor another time and it worked. Uh, I don't know if it's working right now, uh, but but what I, what I mean is is like you you can't you don't get to decide how you move through the world all the time. You could like want to do something and then you can't do it, you know, and like and even like your feelings and your thoughts, like you can't control those, you know, like you can't control that you, you are punishing yourself when actually you don't deserve to punish yourself. Right? Like I'm going to reference another movie just cause I think it, it illustrates this perfectly is like Birdman. You can't even kill yourself if you like it, like the, if the universe doesn't let you, you know? Mm. And so it's weird because it's like with grace, it's in particular, we see it like several times in in Bruges. And, and I think it does a great job of illustrating it. It's like right as Ken is about to shoot him in the back of the head, Ray pulls out a gun and is about to shoot himself. And there's this weird contradiction and paradox where Ken, Ken's like, oh, I can't kill this guy. He's about to kill himself. Because, <laughs> because 
from a Catholic perspective, there's like no worse sin than suicide. Like if you kill yourself, you're damning yourself to hell, which is even more ironic because he jumps off a tower at the end of the film to save mm-hmm. Rick. Mm-hmm. And like, but to me, this is, this is it. Like, this is where grace appears, right? It's in these contradictions where human, human understanding does not work. It does not at all make any sense, but it feels right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, You make no. You make an interesting point about this idea, like pu- the way people punish themselves, and it's usually your pu- your punitive measure is usually worse than what you deserve. Usually, not always. Yeah, not always. I mean, like I would say in the daily, and I think we, yeah, we see this with Harry's character in particular, like where he like he says like if I had killed the kid, I would just put the guy put the gun in my mouth and shot like right right there, mm-hmm. right. And so, and then later we see that kind of come around where he thinks he kills a kid on the film set because. Because of the little person that he murders, um, and immediately yes, trigger he, warning. Trigger warning for anybody that watches this movie. There are some uh, words. Yeah, there doesn't age well in that respect. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, you there are definitely some. That don't condone that language. There is some language yeah, use. Yeah. A lot, not some. There's quite a bit a of language use <laughs> that not PC in these days. So, like, be prepared for that. Yeah, no um, longer a on the approved watch list yeah. in that regard. Yeah. So, uh, but, uh, he, he murders the, the, uh, little actor, the little person actor, uh, thinks it's a child, uh, and does what he said he would do immediately puts his gun in his mouth and pulls the trigger. In which case, like, yeah, you accidentally killed the guy. Um, which is bad. Um, stuck by his, like you said, his moral code. He said he would do, that's what you would do. um, it's pretty. Uh, that's a pretty severe reaction to have. Um, well, and it's his own judgment, right? Which is incorrect. Yeah. Like. Yeah, he's making the judgment on a false assumption. And I think yeah. he's also kind of his that rigidity in his moral code is also kind of childlike. His and Ray's are a little bit. They're they're both kind of childlike in that respect. And Ken's kind of the only one with an understanding of that nuance. I think Ray's getting there, but. Mm. Ken has really clearly wrestled with this for a long time and reached, I think reached a conclusion that he has to believe in redemption. However, he can find it. And I think he has to believe in redemption for Ray in order to believe in it for himself. And that's why he fights so hard for him and doesn't kill him when he's about to kill himself because he empathizes so much with that struggle, even though he's never done anything Mm -hmm. to that extent. And then he doesn't die. Oh yeah, he fall. He goes off the yeah. He he blows his whole body explodes. Yeah, and then he doesn't die. He's not immediately dead. Not until so, he's able to deliver the message yeah, that he that which, he went down there for. Which in in like a I don't know writing or but also spiritual technicality world whatever he didn't shoot. He didn't kill himself. Mm-hmm. He died after the fact. Yeah. But he didn't. He didn't so jump like, down there to kill himself. Right. He jumped yeah. down there to, yeah. de- to deliver a message. Yeah. Yeah. As, as a result, survive. died. <laughs> yeah. So it's That's like, kind of a weird like, way to look at that. 
weird tech, spiritual technicality. But I mean, I think it's brilliant on the writer's point, like to the writer's right. point, because we we have hope that Ken isn't damned. If you come from a Catholic point yeah. of view, right. Um, uh, and Megan, you make a good point about Harry being a little bit childish too. Like I think to that very first moment where we actually meet Harry for the first time, where it's like, it's an inanimate fucking object. You're an inanimate fucking object. I love that part. I'm yeah. sorry. I didn't, you're not an inanimate fucking object. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a silly line. <laughs> but he, he goes over, he's like, I'm sorry. You're not yeah. an inanimate object. <laughs> it's like, oh, duh. And he like makes one when, uh, when Ken says the thing about his kids, like he makes him take it back. Like that's very, yeah. he's, he's very childish. It, this is too far. Yeah. Too far. <laughs> take it back. Sorry. I take it back. I take it back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is some interesting things with like perspective in this movie as well about like the way people see things. So like we get that time when, uh, uh, when Ken goes up in the tower and he's like, we, we're going up. And he's like, why are we going up? He's like, for the view, for the view down here. I can see that from down here. Right, like, right. Uh, yeah. and he goes up, and Ken gets a different perspective on things. He sees right down there, uh, and we see that a few different times about this idea of like the way people are seeing things. Right, about Ray not see his perspective is being blocked by this like priest by this thing that he's doing. He doesn't see the kid, and that that trauma and that guilt that he has is blocking his view of like where he's at, mm-hmm. um, and he, making him very short sighted with things where Ken kind of tends to see things in the bigger picture. And again, and Harry comes in and also sees things very short-sightedly throughout a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just a lot of play on the way people are seeing things, which I think is really interesting. Um, there's Megan, a human... Oh, go, go, ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. What were you saying, Seth? I'm just saying as a human, you, you only have limited perspective. So mm-hmm. you can't know... You can't know – Even we even have a linear time perspective. So you can't think outside of linear space-time. So this is where I get into arguments of – this is fucking – this is where I get into arguments that like, yeah, somebody can grow up to be a bad person, but also they were a good person at one point. Mm-hmm. You know, like a child is still a good person usually until they're corrupted by the world. So like, how do you know that that, that, and if we're like a digital file, right? How do you know that in the afterlife, like that digital file got saved at that point? You know what I mean? And so like, that's the, that's the thing that's, that's like filed away, not the, not the garbage that is corrupted later in life, you know? Well, ahead, I think right. as a as well, no, just just to bounce off that real quick before I transition in kind of a little bit of a non sequitur. Um, on that point, like you know, like if you look at a life as the full as a full thing from birth to death, I think we as people tend to look at the worst thing that somebody does in their life, the worst thing, right? Yeah. And all anything that happened up to that point and anything that happened after that point gets kind of erased a little bit. You know, like it's like, oh, it's this one thing, though. You did this thing. And the worse that thing is, the more like the rest of that stuff is corrupted, you know, in a way. If we're going to use like this like idea of like a a digital file, the if it's a small thing, it doesn't erase most stuff. We can all still accept most of the rest of the file. 
but mm-hmm. the worse that one point is, the more of that file gets completely r- r- trimmed, erased, corrupted. Um, right. And even though, like, you could look at this whole file and most of it be perfectly good, but there's that one point that ru- can ruin the whole thing, right? Like, percentage-wise, like, you could have a 99% perfectly good person file. 1%. And if it's the worst, the worst possible thing that you could have done, that ninety nine percent doesn't matter. You voted for Trump in twenty twenty. It's over. (laughs) I think Seth, you've touched on this a couple of times. Like the idea that really part of it that really fascinates me is when do we lose? When do we? You know, when we're children, like you said, not corrupted by the world. Like when do we lose that innocence? When do we become like? irredeemable and and the thing that always interests me is when they're on the phone and harry says something like if it doesn't stop with him where does it stop and ken answers that it stops with him but like i would argue that i mean harry sent them to that place to do that thing but he doesn't feel any culpability for that at all and i just wonder at like what line does he draw and and where did it come from and why does he get to decide? That's just a really interesting question mm-hmm. to ask. I have a lot of friends like Harry. Um, one in particular, really named Harry. Uh, not not that you know, not hitmen, but men that live by their own code. You know what I mean? They've they've created hard rules and rigid lines uh, for how they think they should be and live. Uh, and they always end up hating themselves (laughs) because, um, because they can't even live up to their own standards, you know? And and white. Yeah. 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 And I mean, and this is, this is, um, where I struggle. I mean, I have a tendency towards that, you know? Um, I, I, I am also someone who will beat themselves up a lot if I screw up in my book. You know what I mean? But at the same time, um, you have to realize that you, like I said, you are you have limited perspective. Doesn't give you a free pass to do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, who are you to decide your punishment? Because you could be incorrect. You know what I mean? You could be, you might have not killed a little boy, you know, like you, you, it's arrogant. It's arrogant to punish yourself essentially, because who are you to say what you deserve? Mm -hmm. I think. Megan, I, I, I wanted like, so you said that uh, growing up that you felt like you were instilled with a lot of Christian indoc- indoctrination, even being outside of it and to a degree. So like, I guess I just asked like, what, what did that look like for you in terms of like guilt and fear? Like, what do you remember affecting you? And do you have like any particular stories or emotions that, that, 
bubble up when you think like, oh, I remember being like 12 years old and this happened or, or anything like anything. I mean, and, and you know, if you don't, that's cool, but just wondering. Yeah. As, any, as far as what you feel comfortable sharing. Yeah. Yeah. I had nothing in particular. I just remember being, I mean, I was also very sheltered. So my understanding of, I was just very like, I, and also being a woman, you're taught you have to stay pristine and, and good. And there's not a lot of gray area there a lot of the time. So I was very, I was a very good girl. And I was very, I think part of it was like, well, these are my own expectations I'm living up to. But part of it was also, I have to be this way because I don't like, I'm scared of what will happen if I don't. Um, and nothing in particular, I think, I, I mean, as an adult, I still carry a lot of the, the guilt complex you guys are talking about, um, especially in my relationships. I think if I screw up once, if I'm mean or I'm, I don't know, if I just like let a little bit of like the anger and a like viciousness show, then I don't forgive myself. And if I don't forgive myself and I'm just trying to distract myself from it, I don't change until it implodes. Um, so I can't think of anything in my childhood, but that's something that the shame and the guilt part and the you have to be a good girl, that part is still very much ingrained in me. Isn't that weird is though? The- like, not, not not weird like you're, you're weird, but like, isn't it strange that you didn't really have a whole lot of church influence, but you still there's some part of you that feels that, you know what I mean? Like, like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it kind of, I can kind of see why, but I feel like we all have that whether or not, whether or not we went to church, you know? Well, I mean, look at what our, go ahead, Megan. No, I was just going to say the world we live in is still built on those things. It's still in the background of everything we do. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah, like, look who, who yeah, look who came to this country first, right? Yeah. It was yeah. a group of deeply religious people came to this country first. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? They set up the values. They set up the the core of like what this like country was built on. And like honestly, there's a lot of inherent misogyny in that. Like mm-hmm. this idea of women need women have to say pure and women have a higher standard of of goodness and purity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's inherent in, I think, just our cultural perception of women. Yeah. We're somehow because it's both. so deeply rooted in that. Yeah. Um, just the idea that we're somehow both like the moral, morally superior one, but also the one that needs to be saved. It's a really confusing place to live in. And to mm-hmm. navigate that now when everything is, <laughs> is better is, cha- well, I say better. Yeah. It's been a rough week, but <laughs> yeah. as everything is changing. Um, it's just, it's confusing. Whether you're 12 or 28, um, Megan, uh, when is you talked about like growing up and like the idea of like you need to be like you have a higher standard of being good as as a young woman as a young girl mm-hmm. growing up. Do you remember a time or at least like a moment in your life where you started like maybe push back on that stuff a little bit, like where you felt yourself rebelling against that in a way? Uh, the even first in thing small that, ways. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind isn't even when I was that, I think I took a really long time to be okay with the idea of not being um, just objectively to everybody good. And Mm -hmm. I think it was like one of my first like major relationships. I just had to come to terms with being like in his eyes, I was, I was mean, I was a bad person. I had done because of his understanding of how the relationship ended, which was not, not objective at all. 
but mm-hmm. coming to terms with the fact that you will not always be the good guy in the story for, for some people. Mm-hmm. And that was really, really hard for me to learn um, and really freeing once I did. But I mean, it was, it was a really, just a really hard lesson to learn. And I'm sure there was smaller stuff before that, but that was my big pushback and like going to college and becoming like, I was a women's studies minor. So those classes were a good, like, foundation to learn like why I felt this way and how to push back and why it's okay to push back. Um, but personally, that's the first thing that I thought of. I, I totally relate to that. I think especially when you brought like relationships, mm-hmm. I, I haven't had a lot of relationships, but something that I personally struggle with quite a bit is this idea of like being the perfect partner mm-hmm. in that like when you're in a relationship, you need to be the, like if I'm not the perfect partner, like if mm-hmm. I don't, if I make a single mistake, this person's not going to love me. This person's going to, going to leave me. Yeah. Um, this person, you know, love, their love is so fragile for me in that way that as soon as I make a mistake, as soon as I'm not the perfect, nice, amenable, mm-hmm. uh, giving person that, that, that they think that they love, mm-hmm. they'll just leave. Yeah. And that's, and then, then going into the punishment after that, like I, I completely ruined that because I wasn't perfect because I didn't think I deserved that forgiveness even Mm -hmm. if they gave it to me I couldn't give it to myself and then you just kind of I mean for me at least I just kind of let it implode because I just Mm -hmm. I'd rather that's almost easier than figuring out how to forgive yourself well I, I think one of the biggest pitfalls in modern relationships is and I I've suffered from it too um is we play a role as opposed to be ourselves Being ourselves and be loved genuinely mm-hmm. and and like the more i don't know you can especially like i don't know ricky for me like as an actor behavior and like how humans behave is like our specialty so it's like mm-hmm. i can play a really good boyfriend you know what i mean mm-hmm. like i know how i know what that looks like but am i really is that what i really am and want to be is that my full full self in person no absolutely not and like Mm -hmm. that's where a lot of my relationships have had problems is like i can commit to this role i'm a method actor man i can commit to this role for years and then and then my personality like the things i really want start to like Mm -hmm. pop out and 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 then that's when shit hits the fan usually you Mm -hmm. know and so like it's and it's easy to just blow yourself out of that like and just start over what's hard is to like stay in it and be like no this is who i really am and and hope for the best Mm -hmm. you know Mm. Um, yeah it's 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 so tough to not get into like the like you said that and you both kind of mentioned like that just blow it up phase right like uh well i've i fuck i fucked it up like i I, this is the moment and just then kind of just like let it implode Mm -hmm. at that point Instead of like, like you said, like trying to like find a way to like not punish yourself for it or like, you know, and let their forgiveness, you know, help you through it. I can, I mean, recently I had a, a relationship where my partner at the time was going through a lot of stuff and I was, I chose not to give her some information about something because I thought that would like pile on to things. So like I was thought I was being the good partner by being like okay like let don't like pile on to stuff so I thought I was being the good partner 
And it turned out that she ended up finding out that I was keeping this little bit of information from her. It wasn't like a, like anything heinous. It was just like a, a small thing, but it hurt her pretty badly. And she was, mm-hmm. you know, and, it, and she was like, you like lied to me. And so like, I, we both took it pretty hard and it completely like the smallest thing that I thought I was being the good partner. I thought I was doing the right thing mm-hmm. ended up completely destroying the relationship. Like it completely blew up after that. And it was, and I pondered, like I was in a, I don't know if you know this stuff, but I was in a pretty rough spot during that time. Like during the couple of months after that had all kind of exploded. Is this, is this, is this LA girl? Yeah. Uh, the same one? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know, yeah, you know. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. I know, I know. Um, so, so. Let me tell it, you it a was rough. story. <laughs> no, <laughs> that, was, that was dumb. <laughs> Uh, um, you're an asshole (laughs) (laughs) no one else is gonna get that but i know (laughs) uh anyway um um, yeah it completely i was in a really rough spot after because i was just like analyzing my decisions i had made leading up because everything was going pretty well up until that point and then it just blew up right away in the the way where like seth said i thought i was playing the role of good partner by by protecting, and I thought that was my job, um, and it truthfully, I probably would have just been better off like doing what probably that person would have wanted, or even just like doing what I th- actually thought was probably the right thing to do. But mm-hmm. I was playing the role of protective boyfriend or protective partner. Yeah, um, yeah, it was rough. I I'm sitting here thinking back, and like. Self-punishment, we've been talking about self-punishment and I can think of a perfect example in my life of how self-punishment is, is selfish, right? It's, it's, it's selfish because, so I, I, I had an MO for a long time of being in a long-term relationship and then I would cheat and then I would immediately, because I cheated in the relationship, right? So in my head, it's, it was, oh, I cheated, so I have to, I can't be in this relationship anymore, right? That's me providing my own punishment because I went out of the relationship. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And w- instead of like facing the music and just ending the relationship and, and I, had to, I had to create a reason. I had to like punish myself but which is really actually what I really wanted, which was to be free of that relationship. Mm. I couldn't go through the, the internal pain of just ending the relationship because I couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm. So like, that's an example I think of using punishing yourself, but you shouldn't be able to decide your. Right. Cause even then it's, it's truthfully, you're not punishing yourself. You're kind of giving yourself what you wanted. It's like, you're the right. worst judge of yourself yeah. because yeah. what you're not giving you, there's no way you can unbiasedly give yourself the right punishment, whether that's right. to your benefit subconsciously or, or not, you know, yeah. or too harshly either, that's either the, direction. Yeah. The question that always comes up for me with this movie or just life in general is again, when there's not a clear cut, thing or person we can ask for forgiveness what do we how do we get it and where do we 
who do we ask? Is it other people? Is it ourselves? And then who decides what's enough? Is it other people? Right. Is it ourselves? There's no, no way to know. Where's the balance? Where's where where does where's the line of justice? Like what is right. equal punishment towards your crime? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I mean, that's very culturally relevant right now. I mean, if 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 we want to I mean, we just came out of we're still I mean Me Too, cancel culture, whatever you want to like look at, like at what point so like our culture decides that someone did something wrong and most of the time they're right, but sometimes they're wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. But like, what, what I'm saying is, is like, at what point is that person allowed to be a human again? Right. You know? And that's the uh, thing. That, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. It just reminded me of the line when I think it's when he's saying that won't go away unless I do. And Ken says something like, save the next little boy and you're not gonna no no good will come of it if you just give up right now and i think that's i mean that's a much more extreme extent of what you're saying but nobody can learn and grow if you just yeah eliminate them from you know if you don't give them that grace or that possibility at all if they say the wrong thing or and there's a line i think where if somebody very clearly doesn't want to learn and is being malicious like there's obviously a line but you know Ray wasn't being that way. And I don't think, I like to think that most people aren't that way. Also to be fair. And just to kind of like bring it back to the movie as we're kind of starting to wrap up here, we don't know what the priest did. Who mm. called in the hit on the priest. We don't know why someone wants to kill this priest. Mm. We don't know. Mm. Like, I mean, we can assume. I was going to say, I've got a guess. <laughs> you can make some, you can make some assumptions. You can absolutely. But truthfully, we don't know. We can assume that there's a, there was a wrongdoing of a kind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no one's just going to kill a priest just to kill a priest, or at least you don't think so. Especially hire a hit on a priest. Someone right. might just kill a priest to kill a priest, but like to hire a hit to pay money, probably a lot of money, mm-hmm. to to assassinate a priest. Yeah, something's going on there. Mm-hmm. But so we don't really know what the the acts of that person are right. and the ripple effects of that. And like you said, like there's a there's a point of retribution where it's like and there is a point of irredeemability, or is there? Right. Right. It's hard to I think your morale everybody's morality is different that way. Some people say there is a point of irredeemability. Sometimes there's something you do you cannot come back from. Nothing mm-hmm. that you do is ever gonna erase what what that. The the mm-hmm. the, the bad that you did. Mm-hmm. That's all then that's living in that is that purgatory. Right. Right. Living in that space of like, I'm a good per. I think I'm a good person, or at least most of my life has been about being a good person. And I've mm-hmm. done this thing. And now I'm in a space where I'm stuck. I'm in that in between of like, people think I'm a bad person. I've done a bad thing, but mm-hmm. I feel like that's not all of who I am. I'm being right. stuck there, like being in Bruges, mm-hmm. you know, this yeah. weird liminal space. It's tough. It's weird. And like and Seth said, like we have a culture right now that like is quick to to damn people. Right. You know, very quick. And like you said, usually you know, again, who are we to say, but usually there should be some damnation for some of those people. There should be some punishment for a lot of those people. But there's been there's been a couple of very prominent times 
where it was a little bit too quick. Mm. That 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 justice, that vengeance was a little bit too swift. Yeah. And the whole and, the whole story was not out. It was a little bit yeah. it was a little bit uh just reactive. And there are I, there are a lot of people playing the role of Harry where and that paints themselves into a corner. I think Seth, you were actually talking mm. about that before, where if you have that strict moral code and you mess up because you're a person and you're going to mess up or mm-hmm. say the wrong thing, or even if it's accidental and you quickly correct yourself, there are people who will immediately cancel you or, you know, damn you. That's and a good then, point. It's, it's, it's people that point the fingers that when they mess up, get yeah. more fingers pointed back. Right. Or you know? I mean, they also, how do they then forgive themselves if they mess up? Like, do they suddenly switch gears and do they learn that it's, there's some gray area or do they enter into this horrible cycle? Where they, yeah. yeah. I, I think it a good example of this and safe, I would say safe example of this uh, is I think when we think about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp right now, right? Like the truth is they're both screwed up. Hmm that relationship was absolutely toxic toxic. and and but i think this situation this trial that they just went through is definitely making society go wait a minute it's not we can't just absolutely 100 percent point fingers and cancel somebody because there's so much going on in this context Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and now there's like People on Amber Heard's side, there's people on Johnny Depp's side. Like, we don't want to blame the victim, like, believe all women, but at the same time, like, men get abused too. And mm-hmm. sometimes men are telling the truth. And so it I think this that's what's so great about uh, I I I think it's good that, that this trial has come become so public because it's made everybody in society go, wait a minute, things are way more complicated than than being able to just say you're right and you're wrong, mm-hmm. you know, like some people shit in each other's beds, you know, like some, you know, like, like it's not, I, I think, I think they hit each other, you know, like I think Amber Heard and Johnny Depp both are guilty, mm-hmm. but do they deserve, I don't think Amber Heard deserves now to be canceled and hated by society. I mean, she doesn't come off great. I'll, mm. I'll say that. But like, and maybe Johnny Depp's just better at, you know, being a person in public. Mm-hmm. So we believe him more, you know, I don't know. But the thing is, neither of them deserve to be unhappy for the rest of their lives for treating each other the way they did. Mm-hmm. And they especially don't deserve to be def- defamed in public. Neither of them deserve to be defamed in public mm-hmm. because of their actions. So like, at what point do we say, okay, Johnny Depp, Okay, Amber Heard, you can go be an actor again. You can be appreciated in the limelight because of you have paid for your sins. You know, mm-hmm. like I think at some point. So so, but that's the problem. Is like who's deciding? Who's deciding these things? It, yeah. it it's like a, a cultural uh, agreement. It's a cu- cultural amalgamation. Because like, what about Louis C.K.? You know. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. Lucy K didn't tech like he he never assaulted anyone in terms of like physical assault. He definitely did some things wrong. He did some really creepy shit and was a pervert. But 
he's one of those people that like if you say his name people are immediately triggered mm. and it's like they picked him like every, like it's not okay what he did but everybody knew he was doing it for a really long time mm-hmm. and then it wasn't until the me too movement happened that he became the face of it along with harvey weinstein which harvey weinstein's like the other like the super extreme mm-hmm. right like we all know harvey weinstein deserved it and nobody wants harvey weinstein working again mm-hmm. i'm just saying these are all things like this is where we're at is like we have to decide when people are allowed to be people again after they commit sins when are they rehabilitated well to to a lesser extent you know will smith right yeah like a very public a, a very public persona of like being like very lovable and then one action you know what i mean in front of millions of people yeah well that's and, the- and, sorry go ahead yeah go ahead no it just changes the whole public perception of the guy yeah and it's like the the court of public opinion with and it happened so quickly with so quickly social media and everything it has become the new like final judgment when these mm-hmm. are still it's just still people making these judgments yeah. and no one knows i think there's also an element of there's definitely an element of self righteousness and virtue signaling and we all want to be we all want to be good and right and people have taken it to a, a, an extreme and I, not to say that like what any of those people did is okay but it's definitely like, um, like I'm not a Louis C.K. fan. I'd like to say first and foremost. Um, but I understand what you're saying about like if somebody has learned and apologized, and when do they get to be a person again, and when? How do we decide that? And why are we allowed to decide that? Mm. And that's to make you you make a good point, Megan. Harry is a virtue signaler. He's a he he right, yeah. he's a hitman. He's a right. hitman himself, and he's like, "No, you kill a kid, you should die." Right? Like, yeah. Like he's ver- like, like, who are you to say, dude? Yeah. You kill people. It's less about <laughs> like I think it might for him even be less about like this is justice and you did a wrong thing, so to even out the universe, I have to do this to you. I I think the virtuous signaling point is that he wants the universe to know that he's a good person, like he or has done the right thing. And he wants mm-hmm. the credit of it and the attention of it. And that's more important to him than the justice of it. Because I think mm-hmm. if the justice of it were more important to him, there would be more empathy involved. Oh, yeah. there's zero, Harry has zero empathy for what actually happened. It's so clear that he does not actually care about that kid in, yeah. in any sort of way. Or it, yeah. It's not about that. You're right. It is all about, well, you know, because the kid's the worst thing you could possibly do. You got to off this guy. Right. <laughs> I think empathy, I think empathy is what this movie's about. Mm-hmm. And like and that's and that's really what guides I think goodness is empathy, mm-hmm. right? And like that's the problem, that's the problem with you know, cancel culture if you want to call it that. It's the problem with where we're at is I don't think like we want we want to have empathy, but you need to have empathy for everybody. Right. People sh- people should be punished. But you need to have empathy for the for the punished, right. you know, because it could easily be you, you know. And I, I have time for a real quick story. Real quick story. Okay, I, I think so. When I was in high school, uh, I had I would go over to this. I would go to a party, and sometimes my bully would be at, one of my bullies would be at this party. And I think I've told you this story, Megan, but I think it does illustrate what I mean. 
uh, one time we were at this party. The dudes that were my bully were like off making out with some girls. And I found a shirt that was my bully's shirt. And I was taking care of the fire. And I hated this guy so much, I threw his shirt in the fire and burned it. Okay? That's the pretext. About two weeks later, I'm at another party. My bully's there. We all get in the back of his truck. Okay? And I'm sitting on the tailgate. And the guy that's driving takes off too fast. And I fall backwards. And my bully grabs me by my shirt and saves me. So it was pretty like ironic and weird that I burned his shirt and he saved me by my shirt, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just like, I just think it's, I would never have thought that guy would have done that for me. You know, he was a total asshole. He banged my head up against lockers and shit, Mm -hmm. but he cared enough about me to not let me bust my head on the die. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. 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 And I think, just to bring it back to the movie, just to wrap it up. I think that's Ken is such a great character for that. Cause Ken is the most empathetic person in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. He's constantly seeing things from other people's, you know, he's, he, he's gentle with Harry, even though Harry's kind of an asshole. Like he, like, like when he says something about Harry's kids and Harry's like, take that back. He's like, I take it back. Yeah. You know, like, I'm sorry. I crossed the line. My bad. I didn't mean that. You know? And he's very gentle with, with Ray. He's, you know, he's even when we see like those, those fat Americans, like Ray says something to them to be mean. Mm-hmm. Like he does. He's like, I'm trying to entertain myself by like teasing these people. Yeah. Ken says it genuinely. Mm-hmm. Like, look guys, just so you know, it's like a really tight, it's really tight there. Like, I just want you to be prepared for that. Just be careful. And they, you know, he, 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 everything from his perspective is very genuine and very empathetic. Yeah. And it, it for everybody. Yeah. You know, Harry, Ray, everybody. It's it's interesting that Ken has that empathy. And like you said, Seth, like this grace that Ken gives everyone, no matter who they are. Yeah. And I Which is interesting. To that point, I think this movie is about how empathy and empathy requires context and consideration of intention. And I think mm-hmm. as we move into the future and how we understand morality as a as a culture, based in the Western culture, I think hopefully we move more towards, cause I don't know what I, I don't know if I believe in God, I believe in something and whatever I believe in, I think considers context and considers intention. Um, and obviously consequences matter and accountability matters, but, but so does trying to be better. Exactly. And that's Amen. all we can Amen. really hope for. Yeah. That's all we can really hope for. And let's just all hopefully hope we don't end up in Bruges. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and that is Bruges. our conversation in fucking Bruges. <laughs> We've never been, so <laughs> we don't want to touch Bruges. But that is our conversation of in Bruges. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for bringing this movie to us and hanging out with us for about an hour and a half or so to talk about it and, and share. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, do you want to shout yourself out? Sure. Why not? Um, I have an yeah. Instagram. <laughs> it's Megan underscore Jane 1961. M-E-A-G-H-A-N underscore Jane 1961. I don't post a lot, but I'll plug something. Why not? 
Yeah, why not? Because this is gonna blow up, and we're all gonna be famous, super famous, <laughs> super famous. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, canceled. But oh yeah, oh yeah, oh god, oh, it's my biggest fear in the world. Oh god, <laughs> Seth. I just said I just said Louis C.K. and Johnny Depp on the same podcast, so I'm the one that has to worry. <laughs> yeah, I'm the. I'm glad I didn't say anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Seth, why don't you go ahead and shout yourself out, my man? Yeah, if you want to hear me ramble, uh, I do have a podcast uh, called The Crowcast. It's the uh, space Crowcast, one word, C-R-O-W-E-C-A-S-T. I'm, I'm going to get some more, I, you know, you know the routine. Uh, also, <laughs> if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at the Birdie Word on Twitter. Uh, that's T-H-E-B-I-R-D-Y-W-O-R-D, at the Birdie Word on Twitter. And Seth Adam Crow on Instagram. That's Crow with an E. Yep. Awesome. And I'm Ricardo Blade Diaz. You can find me at Ricardo Blade Diaz on TikTok and Instagram. That is R I C A R D O B L A Y D E D I A Z. And you can find both Seth and I on our Dungeons and Dragons stream. That is at Character Player. You can find that on Twitch and YouTube if you want to watch, or you can listen along on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, that is Character Player, just like it sounds. Search for the Misfits of the Multiverse podcast. You'll be able to find it. Uh, and, uh, Lastly, it's time to talk about what's next. Seth, what is next for us on the What's It About Film podcast? So, uh, you know, we're going to stick with comedy, but we're going to go a little lighter, just a little. We're going to watch Office Space. Office Space. Okay. Yeah. So if... For any of y'all folks watching along at home, if you want to watch Office Space with us, you can catch Office Space on Amazon Prime, YouTube, Google Play, Apple TV, and Vudu. So those are where you can watch the movie if you want to watch along with us. Megan, once again, thank you so much for being here. And we yes. hope you enjoyed yourself. And we hope that you come on and join us again uh, another time very soon. Another time. I would love to. Another time. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. Again, if you want to follow the podcast itself, it's the What's It About podcast on uh, Instagram. And again, we post on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so you can find us there pretty easily. It's getting easier. It was hard at first. It's getting easier. <laughs> Thank you all so much. We'll talk to you again next time. Bye. Adios. Bye.